0: Please look with me at Romans chapter 8. We're, um, we're back at home with an old friend, a good friend. We're continuing after having been away for a while uh, to make our way through this uh, letter of Paul to the Romans. Uh, when we were last in Romans, we were in this passage, verses 26 to 28 and, and through 30. And uh, we're going to be in this passage uh, this week and next week. And so uh, think of this as, um, as a week-long sermon. You don't have to stay here the whole week, but, um, but just understand that we're going to be a couple of weeks looking at these verses uh, that we'll read now. Romans 8, beginning at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, God works all things together for good. he also glorified. This is God's word, and we give thanks to God for it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, uh, as we come to your word now, um, we do ask you for your spirit's help. We, we acknowledge before you that uh, we're in the deep end of the pool here, wrestling with things that in many respects exceed our capacities for understanding, and so grant us your Spirit's help as we work our way through this passage and take this truth of your word and cause us to marvel and be amazed. Press it into our hearts for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Uh, some of you may know, um, some of you may not know the name Horton Foote. You know the name Horton Foote. Uh, you know that Horton Foote was a much uh, celebrated playwright and screenwriter. Uh, in fact, he wrote the screenplay for the 1962 or 63 film To Kill a Mockingbird. And he wrote the screenplay for uh, another film, favorite film of mine, A Trip to Bountiful, if you remember Trip to Bountiful, really poignant films, really, really insightful, insightful guy. He wrote another screenplay, and this one is probably up there in the top five for me, even up there alongside Braveheart and Dracula, if you can imagine. Um, And that uh, screenplay uh, is the screenplay to the film Tender Mercies, which is a movie that stars Robert Duvall, and Robert Duvall plays a country-western singer-songwriter. Uh, his character leads uh, a hard, uh, self-absorbed, self-destructive uh, sort of life. It involves uh, alcohol and drugs, and, and tragically, it involves death. The, dead, the death of his daughter plays a major uh, role in the film and in his character, uh, and then uh, in the course of, well, actually, this is kind of where the film starts, he, he ends up in a, in a cheap three- or four-room hotel in what he later in the film refers to as a godforsaken part of Texas. Now, I've been through West Texas, and I agree with him. It's a pretty desolate and destitute kind of a place if you've driven through West Texas. And he ends up in this three- or four-bedroom hotel, not really knowing how he got there. And the hotel is operated along with a gas station and and what was, I guess, back in those days, the, the equivalent of, of a convenience store. Um, ends up there, doesn't know how he got there. And all of this is operated by a young mother uh, whose husband uh, was killed in Vietnam, died in the war in Vietnam. Lots of sadness in this film. But the woman is clearly a Christian. And in the course of the film, by the end of the film, Robert Duvall's character has gotten sober, gotten straight. He has been baptized in the nearby Baptist church by immersion, just for the record. And he has fallen in love with and has married the woman who operates the gas station, convenience store, and motel. And at the end of the film, there is this incredibly wonderful scene. I mean, it's poignant because because it is a mixed sort of a thing. And there's this little soliloquy that Robert Duvall presents in his character, which consists of a bunch of questions, a series of questions all of which begin with the word why, the interrogative why. Why, 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 why? Why all of these things? Why did my daughter die? Why did Sonny, the woman's little boy, why did his father die in the war? Why, 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 why? But in the midst of the whys, he asks this why question. Why did I end up here? Why did I end up here in a place where you would take me in Show me pity and help me put my life back together. Why? Why me? Why me? Now, we're wading in, as I mentioned in my prayer in these verses. We're wading into the deep end of the pool We're dealing with some terms in this passage that have caused no little consternation among the people of God. Division, um, hard words spoken across a divide that separates folks, the the words, the ideas that are here in these verses are the words foreknowledge and predestination, Uh, ideas over which a whole lot of ink has been spilled across the years, the life of the church. My hope this week and next week is to be able to bring some clarity to all of this. But here's what my real hope is, my deeper hope, and my prayer. My deeper hope and my deeper prayer is that as we work our way through this and begin to get some handles I trust, on what these words mean and how they relate to who God is and who we are, my deeper hope and prayer is that we will get to the end of this and we will ask the very question that Robert Duvall's character asked in that film. Why me? Why me? Why should I be the object of this great, Grace and love and mercy. Why me? Why should it be that God would take me in and show me pity and mercy and kindness and get my life straightened out? That's where I really want for us to be as we wrestle with these words and these ideas as we come to this, for those of you uh, who know me, if you're new to me, then this is going to be kind of new to you. But for those of you who know me, you know that I feel constrained. I feel that it's necessary before we kind of get down into the weeds of the particulars to take a look at things from a 30,000 foot perspective, uh, a, a, a perspective of a larger context, and that's what I want to do this week, and then toward the end of our time this morning, um, get down maybe to about ten thousand feet and begin looking at things a little bit more closely, meaning the immediate context of these verses. And then here's the hook, here's the bait. Then next week, see you got to come back. Next week, look at the particulars of these particular words: foreknowledge and predestination but always with a view to what I believe is God's intent in everything that he reveals to his people, always with a view to this question, why me? Always with a view to gaining greater insight into how staggering and remarkable and amazing is this grace that we sing amazing grace about. I mean, people are writing books these days. You know, what's so amazing about grace? I mean, it just sort of rolls off the tongue. We sing amazing grace. But I want so much for us to be captivated at a heart level. Gain, I hope, by God's grace, by God's spirit, some new apprehensions of just how amazing this grace is. So first then, the 30,000-foot view, what I would call some general considerations. And what I actually want to do is take our cue... From Peter, as we get this uh, big perspective, this thirty thousand foot view. I want to look at a passage just briefly, somewhat briefly, from Second Peter chapter three and verses fourteen through sixteen. So listen to these words as we, as we keep the words of Romans 8 in mind. But as we try to get this 30,000 foot, this big picture perspective about those words. Hear these words from Peter. They're good, good caution, good pastoral counsel for us. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, and what Peter is referring to here is really the day of the Lord, the return of Christ, the day when Christ returns, and as he says in verses 12 and 13 just above, the heavens will be dissolved with fire, the heavenly bodies will burn, they will melt, but the new heaven and the new earth will emerge. As we're waiting for these things, beloved, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. And then here's the verse I want to take our cue from. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Okay? 30,000 foot considerations. First, this from Peter's letter, his second letter. First, recognize that Peter refers to Paul's writings as Scripture. Peter refers to Paul's writings as Scripture. You need to know, I think it's helpful to know, that over 50 times in the New Testament, this word that's translated here, scripture, appears. And whenever it appears, with two exceptions, it refers to the Old Testament canonical scriptures. Genesis through Malachi. Whenever you read in the Gospels, Jesus citing the Old Testament, whenever you read in the New Testament letters, Paul or Peter or anybody else citing the Old Testament, very, very often, more than 50 times, they will use this phrase, as the Scriptures say. That word in the original refers to the Old Testament canon. And you see what Peter is doing here? Peter is taking that word which had very significant theological meaning for the readers, he is taking that word, Scripture, and he is applying it to Paul's writings, to his letters. Peter had the view of Paul's letters that they were accorded the same authority, that they had the same origin, and had the same reliability as the 39 books of the Old Testament. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because when we come to Romans chapter 8, we need to understand that the Bible understands about itself, meaning specifically Romans chapter 8, and more specifically Romans eight twenty-six through 30, the Bible understands about itself that those verses are, in fact, Scripture originating with God, carrying the same authority, having the same force as the Old Testament Scriptures. For some of you, maybe most of you, that's not news. But for some of you here, it may be. And so I mention it for that reason. I mention it because it could be because I do know that there are folks who are newer to Christ the King, have come over the last weeks and months. You're hearing things, you're seeing things, you're participating in things. Maybe you have a question about the nature of this book. Maybe you question why we focus so much attention upon it. Well, it is for that reason because both Old Testament and New Testament, this is the Word of God for us. It originates with God. It has God's authority stamped upon it and we come to it to hear from Him. You don't come to it to hear from me ultimately. You come to it To hear from him. And so as we come to Romans chapter 8, and as we come specifically to these two words, foreknowledge and predestination, and other matters that are related to them, words like election, which you find in Ephesians chapter 2, let's please understand that this is the word of God for us. This is the word of God for us. In a lot of minds, even in the minds of good historians, or at least historians who are highly regarded, in the minds of many people, these ideas of foreknowledge and election and predestination, they're Calvin's ideas. Well, let's be clear about this. Calvin didn't make these things up. Calvin sought to understand them, as did Luther before him shortly before him, as did Augustine, centuries before him, as have all faithful expositors of the Scripture. These are Bible words, Bible ideas, ideas that God does give to his people for his people's benefit. And so as we come to them, we come submitting and seeking to understand and doing the best we can, and this is always a challenge, doing the best we can to set aside our prejudices, our biases, setting all of that aside in order to do the best we can to understand God and how God sees these matters. Because ultimately, it all has to do with him, with us, with how he views the world, with what he is doing in the world. So that's the first thing. Let's just remember that we are coming to the Scriptures when we come to this passage in Romans chapter 8. And then here's the second thing, second sort of big picture consideration. Peter acknowledges, and this ought to be a great comfort to us, Peter acknowledges that there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. Now let's remember who Peter is. Peter's a contemporary of Paul. Peter and Paul are friends. I mean, they had a disagreement, and that disagreement was resolved, it appears. But they are contemporaries. They are co-laborers. They are both apostles. In fact, beyond that, they are both instruments, means by which God has made himself known on this side of the cross. Here's how you think about the Bible, okay? Here's how you think about the Bible very quickly the Old Testament prepares us for the coming of Christ and the cross. The Gospels describe the fulfillment of what is promised and the letters provide interpretive analysis and application of the significance and meaning of the cross. With the revelation, the last book, pointing us in the direction of the final consummation of the work which Christ began in his incarnation, life, death, resurrection, ascension, now rule and reign. That's how you think about the Bible. Promise, cross, Gospels describe fulfillment along with some interpretive stuff, but the letters provide us with the interpretive and application material that we need in order to understand the cross. Peter and Paul, along with James and Jude and the, letter, uh, the author of the letter to the Hebrews, are instruments and means by which God provides that interpretive stuff for the church to benefit from. And Peter says about Paul's letters, there are things in them hard to understand. Now, that should be a great relief to you, right? You should say, I'm not the only one. An inspired author of Scripture encountered Paul's stuff and found it at points hard and difficult to understand. So, the question arises, it seems to me, Why are some things in Paul's letters hard to understand? Why is it that we wrestle with some of what it is that Paul says or some of what it is that Peter says or some of what it is that the author of the letter to the Hebrews says? Why is it that we struggle to understand that last book of the Bible? This is an important point. don't have time to belabor it, but just take my word for it. We don't struggle because the Bible itself is unclear in itself. We struggle to gain clarity with what the Bible teaches at points because there are these two things that are true of us. And if this were a Q&A time, I'd ask you what those two things are. What are the two things that are true of us which are not true of God? We are both finite and flawed. We are are finite and we are flawed. Folks, we have to understand that the finite will never be able to wrap its mind entirely around the being of God, the ways of God, the purposes of God, the execution of those purposes. And this is a beautiful thing. Look, Again, I don't have time for I'd love to preach a whole sermon on this, but don't have time. You were made to be enraptured by glory. You were made to be enraptured by something bigger than yourself. You were made to be immersed in something so glorious that it takes your breath away. It's not a bad thing to stand in the presence of God and be staggered by the wonder of His being and His ways. It's what you were made for. You're made for glory. To be clothed in it. To be restored to it. To be so wrapped up in it that it takes your breath away. That's what you were made for. Look. I go to the grocery store. You go to the grocery store. When you're waiting in the express line, which most of the time doesn't feel like an express line, what are you stuck looking at? Star power. Star power. Why are we fascinated with stardom? Why are we fascinated with people of great accomplishment, great wealth, great giftedness? We're made, we're made to marvel at glory. The mistake we make is this, we find glory in all the wrong places. We're made to find glory in one place. As finite creatures with a capacity to apprehend and be amazed by the infinite, we are made to find glory in one place, and that is God. And so when you bump up against stuff that causes your mind to spin, your head to swirl, don't, don't, don't turn away. Be amazed because you're made to be amazed. You're finite. You'll never fully comprehend the infinite. And so when we come to these terms, predestination, foreknowledge, we're diving into the deep end of the pool. If you don't get it, if you can't comprehend it, let it lie. Let it lie. Ruminate. Reflect. Do what the finite is supposed to do. Marvel at something bigger than yourself. Don't turn away in disgust, and for heaven's sake, don't rebel and turn away from the Word of God. That is what got us into trouble in the first place. And you're flawed. You're flawed. You are flawed. How do I know that? Because I'm not, and I can see flaws everywhere. No. Look, I don't know you exhaustively. There's only one person in the whole universe who knows you exhaustively. I don't even know most of you what I would call really, really well. But here's what I do know. We're cut out of the same piece of cloth. We come from the same parents. And we're flawed. Look, folks, you've been wrong about things in the past. Haven't you? I mean, come on, is anybody here really going to stand up in the midst of this assembly and say, I've never been wrong? Not. We need to chat if you do. I mean, I know there are some of us, I'm real good at this, there are some of us who want everybody else to believe that we've never been wrong. but We know better. You've been wrong in the past, and I will guarantee you that you are wrong about something right now. You're wrong about something, either in point of detail or as that point of detail relates to other things. Meaning, you're either wrong about some specific thing, or you may be right about some specific thing, but it's out of balance with respect to everything else. And that is just as wrong as being wrong in that point of detail. You have been wrong. I'll guarantee you there's something about which you're wrong now. And the reason is you're flawed. You are finite, my friends, and you are flawed. We are finite and we are flawed. God is neither. God is infinite. Have you ever noticed how many of our descriptors of God begin with a negative? He is not finite. He is incomprehensible. Not comprehensible. Right? We have to describe God using negatives because he is so much bigger than we are. We lack language to exhaust the reality that he is. God is not finite with respect to anything in any way and particularly And what's particularly appropriate for this passage, he is not limited with respect to his knowledge. That's important to keep in mind. He is infinite in knowledge. And he is perfect. He is not flawed. And what this ought to cause in us is a great, great sense of humility. I will tell you one thing I don't get. Not that I'm not guilty of it. I am. But here's something I just don't get. I don't get an arrogant Christian. I don't get a proud Christian. I just don't get it. If a Christian is one who has come to understand these two things, which are baseline things for being a Christian, I am the creature before the creator, and I am a sinner in the presence of a holy and righteous God. Where in the world is there room for pride, for arrogance, for any sense of being above anybody. How does that work? Look, folks, we, we've got to own this. This is just a little bit of pastoral application at this point. We've got to own this. We've got to own the fact That too often, when those from the outside walk into our midst, what they encounter is not brokenness and humility, but self-righteousness and strength. And that betrays the gospel. We're finite, friends, and we're flawed. And something like humility, an acknowledgement of deep weakness and brokenness, Humility, as much as anything, is what should characterize my life and our life together. So when we come to the scriptures, we come with humility, right? We come with a recognition that we are finite, that we are flawed, that we are deeply needy people. Every Sunday, without fail, in this church, Before presuming to preach the scriptures, I plead with Christ for the presence of his spirit. That is not a perfunctory, liturgical, rote item. That is the most desperate prayer any self-aware preacher will ever pray. God, grant us your spirit because we are finite. And we are flawed. And if you don't come to help us, nothing of value in the next 30, 35, 40, 60 minutes will be of value. We're finite, folks. We're flawed. And when we come to the scriptures, we come humbly. We come setting aside our biases. We come recognizing how disordered our thinking can be, how disordered our hearts can be. And so that's the second thing. Peter acknowledges that there are things here that are hard to understand, but we shouldn't be surprised and we should not be dismayed and we ought not turn away. And then here's the third thing that we ought to recognize from what Peter says. And this is a real caution. When you encounter something hard to understand, as was the case in Peter's day, we have to resist The danger, the temptation of twisting or altering or mangling what it is that is revealed to us. Peter says that there are some who, when they encounter Paul's writings, find things hard to understand and they twist them to their own destruction. Folks, as we come to these things, we want to be mindful that this is what God has revealed. He's revealed it for our good. It is not always easy to deal with, but the last thing in the world I want to do, the last thing in the world I want you to do, is twist or distort what God has revealed. Either because we don't like it, or we want in some way to cause it and make it to conform to our understanding of how the world should be. We can't do that, friends. There's great danger in doing that. And so we come to this word of God humbly, remembering who we are, fully acknowledging that there are things that we struggle to understand, but wanting desperately and deeply for the spirit of God to grant us assistance so that we not distort or twist or in any way mangle or mutilate what God has revealed. Now, having said that, let's work this out just a little bit. Having said that, let's simply understand that good, thoughtful, faithful men and women will differ as they seek to understand these things. And the manner in which we discuss them, the manner in which we as Christians interact over these things is very important. And it's extraordinarily important that we be careful that we be patient, and that we be loving as we deal with our differences and our genuine attempts to understand what is going on here. So those are some big picture things, some 30,000 foot things. Let's remember that we're dealing with scripture. Let's remember that we come to the scriptures humbly knowing who we are. And let's be very careful and very prayerful that we not distort or manipulate or mangle anything that God has revealed. And as we do that, let's keep this 10,000 foot perspective very much in view. Let's remember, and we'll talk about this more next week. Let's remember the immediate context, the immediate setting in which these verses are found, that immediate setting, that immediate context, is Romans 5.1-8.39, a portion of Scripture that has one central and key purpose in view, and that is to give assurance to God's people. To assure God's people that they are safe. And they are safe, ultimately, Because the great God of heaven and earth has taken initiative. Notice that in these verses. Notice the personal pronoun. He, 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 he. he. Repeatedly, he did this. He did that. He did the other thing. Your assurance as a Christian at the end of the day is grounded, not in yourself but in God himself who he is and what he has done and because of what he has done you can read Romans 8:38 and 39 with absolute confidence there is nothing in all of the creation that will ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus nothing because he has secured your safety. As we come now to the Lord's table, I invite you and encourage you to keep that very much in mind. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you. Uh, Thank you for your word. Thank you for this portion of it in Romans and in 2 Peter. Uh, And thank you that though we may struggle may wrestle with some things. We can come to your word with absolute confidence because it originates ultimately with you. And you never tell a lie. You always speak the truth. So over these days and then next week, please do continue to grant us your spirit. That by your spirit's work among us, we may understand what you would have us understand. Know what you would have us know. And then by the same spirit, would you apply that truth deeply, deeply to our hearts so that we might ask that question, why, oh God, would you do this for me? Help us to get to that place. We pray, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.